So you, uh, you may already know this, but you know, there are a lot of big things that start out really small. Every piece of music, like Pat just shared with us, uh, from sacred hymns to the most complex symphonies all come from basically eight notes, right? Uh, all of the profound speeches that have ever been uttered and all of the influential books that have ever been written in the English language come from just 26 little letters. Uh, a tiny pebble tossed in a calm pool can create a thousand ripples, all proving that small beginnings can produce profound and extensive results. And we're going to see that in today's lectionary reading that takes us back again into the Gospel of Mark uh, into a very short parable of Jesus known as the parable of the mustard seed from Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26. And I hope you have your Bibles with you, even though it's on the screen. So Mark 26, I'm sorry, Mark, yeah, Mark 26. Mark 4, beginning in verse 26. And this is what this is what the, the Bible tells us this morning. And he said, and meaning Jesus, the kingdom of God is as if, as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He does not have it. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. And puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much for these lectionary readings in the Gospel of Mark. We thank you for these parables of our Lord. But Father, we ask you that uh, you would not allow our, our minds to be dull, our eyes to be dim, our hearts to be closed. Uh, lend us your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we always pray that we would see Jesus today, Lord. Show us, show us him in the text. Give us, Father, the message that you have for us today. And continue, Father, to draw us closer to you in these next moments. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So you, you guys have all heard parables, right? They're just a simple story used to illustrate a moral or, or spiritual lesson. Uh, and you know, parables were one of the most common methods of instruction that the rabbis of Jesus' day used as a teaching technique and as a method to interpret scripture. And uh, I mentioned this in Sunday school, and I know we've talked about this before, but it's been a while, about the different ways of looking at and presenting a scripture text. And just to give you a quick recap, there are three basic teaching methods for scriptural interpretation that both Jews and Christians agree on, and they are the literal, the contextual, and the prophetic. So the literal, the contextual, and the prophetic. The Jews call them the Hashat, the Ramez, and the Sof. But, but the first one's the literal, right? The literal method. It's just a simple, straightforward, plain reading of the text. That's actually what the Hebrew 
where a shot means it means simple, it means basic, it means surface level. So in other words, the text before you, if you're reading it, has a literal plain meaning that the author wants to convey, which is exactly what it says on the page. Doesn't get any simpler than that, right? Then there's the contextual method, as in how does one passage of scripture shed light on other similar passages and point to or hint at a deeper meaning? And that's what the word remez means in Hebrew. It's Hebrew for a hint. It's a word or a phrase or an element in the text that hints at a truth from another text without coming right out and just saying it. And then, of course, there's the prophetic method of scripture interpretation, what the rabbis call so. And so is a Hebrew word for secret. And its use in interpretation points to a, a future fulfillment of whatever the text is that you're reading. But there's one other one, one other method of looking at and of presenting scripture that we haven't really talked about because it's not used nearly as often as the other three in the old scriptures, although it is equally important, it's called the Midrash. Uh, and the Hebrew word Midrash or Midrash means to search. And it's more the idea of, of teaching the scriptures through the lens of examples and stories that, that you can actually link to your own personal experiences. Uh, and then you can understand it in the sense of applying it to your own life and your own circumstances and using that to share a teaching moment or a sermon with other people at, at the, the level of their everyday lives. And that's where parables like the one that we read start to fit in because they actually have elements of all four of those methods. Right? They're, they're plain, straightforward stories. They've got a direct meaning. But while at the same time they often hint at a future fulfillment and they're designed to apply to our personal circumstances. That's what parables do. Now the word parable, just from the Greek word parabola, that means a comparison or a not an analogy. And it's a story, if you think about it, that's usually narrating what people do rather than what people say. And it's not generally placing the action of the story like a concrete time or setting, so it has a really broad appeal. And as I said, parables were used all the time during sermons in the synagogues, and they were actually, according to tradition at least, uh, first invented by King Solomon in order to reveal the secrets of God's law. So their use would be very familiar to Jesus' audience. And in the course of Mark's Gospel in chapter 4, Jesus actually gives us three of them. He gives us three gardening parables to help us understand what the kingdom of God is like. And they are, and I didn't read the first one, but the parable of the sower. Then there's the parable of the growing seeds that I read to you. And the parable of the mustard seed. And Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a seed that grows. So the first one that we didn't read, the parable of the sower, and we've looked at it before several times, shows us that the seed, being the word of God, is always good. Right? God's word is always good. And when it's sown, if there's a fault, the fault is only ever with the soil that receives it. And it demonstrates for us that, humanly speaking, all you and I can ever do is sow the seed, never knowing exactly what's going to happen with it, and then leave the results up to the Lord. Right? You know, when Martin Luther was writing one of his commentaries uh, on these parables, he said, uh, After I preached my sermon on Sunday when I returned home, I drink my little glass of Wittenberg beer and I let the gospel run its course. <laughs> and I kind of like that. Because what Luther is saying is, 
the faith that God had given him to accomplish the work that God had called him to do, that he rested in the knowledge that God would make that work fruitful because it was God's work to begin with. And Luther knew that the power of his sermon was not based on the power of his theological acuity. He knew that the power of the sermon was not based on his eloquence or on his abilities. He knew that the delivery of the sermon would have no effect whatsoever unless the very word of God got into a person's heart to convince them, number one, of the truth of the gospel, number two, to convict them of their sins, the sins that sent Jesus to the cross, and number three, to reveal the plan that God himself had conceived and set in motion for the world began. And church, it's only the Holy Spirit that can do that. So that's the parable of so then, of course, there's, uh, in the course of his message, Jesus moves to the parable of the growing seeds that I read to you. So he moves from the planting to the process. Okay, from planting to the process. And the, so he's going to tell us in that one the process of a Christian spiritual growth from origin to maturity. And I want to share that part with you again just really quickly from Mark 4, beginning in 26. And, and he said the kingdom... Now God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises day and night, and the seeds sprout and grow. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, but once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest had come. And what he's saying here is that church regeneration precedes faith as opposed to faith preceding regeneration. In other words, you have to be born, and in this case, reborn first, before you can grow into maturity, right? And you may be thinking, well, duh, of course. Of course. But here's why that matters. And this is why I want to stop here and point this out, because the worldly church teaches that if you work up enough faith on your own, then that's when you get saved. But does that idea give glory to God? Or does it give glory to the person who worked up the faith to be saved? Right? See, that puts the, that kind of thinking puts the spotlight on the person who accepted Jesus on their own or on the basis of their own personal faith. But church, that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is what? It makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are what? God's workers. And you are God's field. But it was God who made it grow. Amen. Just like that great old hymn by Henry Alford. So we ourselves are God's own field, fruit unto his praise to yield. Weed and tares together sown unto joy or sorrow grown. First the blade and then the ear and then the full horn shall appear. So, church, because our regeneration always comes first and it's always and only the work of the Holy Spirit, not something we can muster up on our own. See what I did there? Not even a pity laugh for the new folks that are here. Come on, you guys. You're embarrassing. You must muster up it. That was, a really, that was a really bad. So you should have. Sometimes you tell me my jokes aren't funny. That one really wasn't funny. <laughs> but 
But that's why Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And so both those parables of sowing and of maturing are illustrations uh, and use illustrations of growing seed to describe God's kingdom. And then when we get down to the main parable, the main one of the text today, the parable of the mustard seed that we're looking at, it describes the extent to which that seed will grow. As we read earlier, our Lord said, the mustard seed, although it's one of the smallest seeds that people in his day planted, yet given the right conditions of mustard plant of that day and in that part of the world, could grow to the size of a tree. And in the same way, from the smallest of beginnings, one man, our Lord Jesus, preaching the good news, will grow the kingdom of God until it becomes the greatest kingdom that the world has ever seen. And he talks about those little mustard seeds all the time in describing this, doesn't he? So remember, in addition to, to using the mustard seed in this parable, Jesus used it in an illustration in Matthew 17. At that time, his disciples couldn't cast a demon out from a young boy. Matthew 17, 14 says that when, when they came, when came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was instantly healed. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why did we not cast them? Jesus said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And then again, in Luke 17, Jesus used that, that mustard seed parable again. He says in Luke 17, 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Jesus said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say this mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey And so, so why, why was Jesus so fond of this little seed? I mean, if you were to, if you were to take and lay a, a mustard seed alongside other common garden seeds, that little mustard seed would look like nothing more than just a speck. But, but I, think, I think that's exactly what attracted Jesus to this tiny little seed in the first place. And it was its unbelievable potential. Because even though it's one of the smallest seeds I read, it's about 164th of an inch in diameter. As I said before, it can grow into trees of incredible size. And so maybe for Jesus, the mustard seed was evidence that God could bring great things out of something so insignificantly small. Because, you know, just like the tiny mustard seed, Jesus had that same small beginning. He was born in a little town of Bethlehem. Born to a humble Jewish carpenter named Joseph and a teenage girl named Mary. Grew up in the little Galilean town.
town of Nazareth. And for 30 years, he lived in relative obscurity. But then in the three years following his baptism by John in the Jordan River, Jesus' life and his teachings and his miracles and his death and burial and resurrection left the most lasting impact of anyone who has ever set foot on this planet. Think, think about it. You know, at, at the time of Jesus' ascension, as we have been looking at before, there was a total of 131 believers living in Jerusalem. About near about to our average attendance, right, Marshall? Our average yearly attendance, about 130. That was it, living in Jerusalem. That included the 11 remaining apostles and their congregation, about 120. Now, that 131 followers hardly sounds like a kingdom, does it? That wouldn't be a very big kingdom. But remember what happened at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So the day of Pentecost, this little kingdom grew from about 120 plus the apostles to 3,000 in a single day. Just two chapters later in Acts chapter 4 we read, But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about what? 5,000. The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And then later in Acts chapter 9, we see that the kingdom, the, the church branching out like a, a mustard seed to Judea and to Galilee and to Samaria. And as we know in time, the kingdom of God advanced to, to the Gentile nations in what the Bible calls the uttermost parts of the world. And church, that includes you and me sitting here today. Praise God. But, but who among the very first 12 apostles would have guessed that 2,000 years ago, guessed that when Jesus' body was was planted in the tomb, as it were, and then his resurrected body blossomed out three days later that the kingdom of God was grow taller and taller to include about 1.6 billion people alive today. And who would have guessed? You see, there's something about that kingdom. There's, there's something about our Jesus which not only grows, but grows enormously large and church. Because of that, there is nothing in the whole universe that is not under his domain and jurisdiction or that doesn't in some way owe its origins to the Christian faith. Whether it's science, medicine, higher education. In fact, the very foundation of our Western civilization owes its existence to the kingdom of Christ, which is why I said before there is no subject that is out of bounds from this pulpit. Everything is subject to the kingdom of Christ. And I give you just a quick example. You know, even though it's... It's become fashionable in the liberal media to think of Christians as somehow antithetical to science. Uh, actually, nothing is further from the truth because guess what? Christians invented the scientific method along with the tons of other innovations. Precision musical notation, windmills, eyeglasses, the printing press, spinning wheel, magnetic compass, the welcome world. Christians founded the first universities the first hospitals, the idea of palliative care and nursing homes. And even though modern-day Americans don't want to admit it, the Christian faith is what gave us the freedoms that we enjoy as citizens today. Only the Christian faith could produce a document that enshrined God-given rights into our Declaration of Independence that we have. Uh, naturalism could not do that. Hinduism would not do that. Islam has no concept of our religious freedom. 
Only the Christian faith, only the faith of men and women like our congregational ancestors who came to this nation. Men and women who spawned the preaching of men like John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and saw the establishment of places like Harvard and Yale and Princeton, which were originally founded, whether they want to admit it or not, and endowed to train reformed congregational Calvinist pastors for America. And all of that, all of those things springing up from the solitary life of our Lord Jesus Christ and the small but mighty seeds of his simple sermons. As God used Jesus' small and humble beginnings to set something in, in motion even more important than all of those things, to set in motion our great salvation and launch the church. See, that's how he works out little things on a large and epic scale. And, and, and just to bring that by way of personal application, he does that very same thing in the lives of everyday folks, just like you and me. Remember, God took Abraham and Sarah, a little, little old couple about the, the age of many of the folks that are in this room today, and promised to give them a son and a big family. And that family came, and it grew. It grew quickly into a group of about 70 people who went down into Egypt. And when that group, that little group came out again, it was as the two million strong nation of Israel that emerged. God used the boy David with five little stones to defeat a giant. God turned a little boy's lunch of five loaves and two fishes into enough food to feed 5,000. God turned Gideon's small band of 300 soldiers into victorious champions who defeated the Midianite army of thousands. Because time after time after time in Scripture, we see God take little things, insignificant things, and seemingly worthless things to accomplish great things. And we can never underestimate what great things God can do through us as believers and do through this church. Because, you know, compared to a lot of other churches in town, FCC is a little mustard seed, aren't we? We don't, we don't have a big membership. We don't have big programs. We don't have a huge attendance. But that doesn't mean God can't do great things through this church for the kingdom of heaven. Right? So you can never underestimate what great things God can do through us as individuals. You may think, well, hey, you know, I'm just one person. What can I do? Well, the truth is a lot. A lot. If you and I have faith, even faith, the size of a little mustard seed. You know, you may think your little prayers, your little deeds of kindness, your little words of encouragement, or your little tithe don't matter, but church, thank you. Your, just your smile, your touch, your word of encouragement, your consistent donations, your fervent prayers can communicate the kingdom of God's love like very few other things can. Where Francis of Assisi put it like this, he said, the deeds you do may be the only sermon some people will hear today. The deeds you do when you leave here may be the only sermon some people will hear today. And those small things you're doing are your mustard seeds of faith. Because you know, from the time we were born, uh, each of us, each individual has been entrusted with resources of time and of talents and, and a certain amount of material wealth and all of those things we have from God and really belong to him, we are responsible for using those resources in faith so that they increase in value. And even beyond those things as Christians, we have something else. Additionally, 
we have the most valuable resource of all, and that is the seed of the Word of God. Right? And if we apply it by faith, even if our faith is small at first, we can be a blessing to others, and the value of what we do multiplies, and God's kingdom grows like that little mustard seed into a tree. A tree large enough to help support others, and then in due time, God will bring about a harvest as you and I stay in faith and don't give up. Not because he needs our help, but because God graciously chooses to work through secondary means, and one of those is you and me. Because church, small things, what I meant to say was big things, start small. And I want to close by sharing the words of an old hymn that I, I kind of forgot you were part of, it was part of my ordination service, uh, titled Little Is Much. Uh, this, is a, this is how the second verse goes. In the harvest field now ripened, there's a work for all to do. Part of the voice of God is calling to the harvest, calling you. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Does the place you're called to labor seem too small and little known? It is great if God is in it and he'll not forget his own. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. This church, little is much when God is in it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for the faith that you do give to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are constantly reaching out, constantly pursuing us, constantly drawing the people to yourself. And Father, we ask that you would send us out today with whatever measure of faith that you desire us to have. Help us to put it to use in our families, in our community. Uh, and Lord, we pray today too for, uh, for anyone that's in this room or anyone listening. If they don't know you, Father, as their personal Savior, that you would surprise them by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would overwhelm them by the power of your presence. That you would draw them to you, Lord, that eyes may be opened and that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. We trust you, Father. For all that you're going to do ahead of us in this week. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.